the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Friday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. It's been an eventful week with four days of the Republican National Convention culminating with President Trump's nomination acceptance speech last evening, and it was a stemwinder hour and 10 minutes. Uh, we'll uh, talk about that a little bit coming up with uh, Brian Stile. He's a Republican congressman from the 1st District, Kenosha, the district that used to be represented by Paul Ryan, now represented by Brian Stile, which also includes Kenosha. So we'll have a, a discussion about uh, the latest in Kenosha. Uh, in addition to uh, a little bit later on the show, we'll talk to Brett Baer. We'll talk to Andy Kroll from Rolling Stone about uh, the convention and, uh, in particular, Trump's speech. But something uh, I want to hit upon with respect to his speech, and uh, you can get a copy of what I'm about to reference, at Dan Prof Show, uh, that's social media handle, as well as at Dan Prof, and then com is the website, just as a reminder. Something he hit upon uh, that um, I wrote an op-ed for the Chicago Sun-Times in terms of trying to frame the race and the case for Trump. Something he said, I don't think a lot of people will pick up on, and it wasn't a motif uh, in the speech, but it was mentioned. And I think it probably deserves more prominence uh, in the closing couple of months before Election Day. Together we have ended the rule of the failed political class, and they are desperate to get their power back by any means necessary. You've seen that. They are angry at me because instead of putting them first, I very simply said America first. Right. This is a stop the spread election. And uh, yes, COVID-19, but more importantly, appeasement in the face of barbarism, which is what uh, the ruling class is want to do. The Beltway Insiders are want to do Republicans and Democrats. And and so I believe that Trump is largely in the same position he was in 2016, which is as the challenger. There are some things that have changed and I want to go through them in the intervening four years, of course, starting with the fact he's been president for four years. But I mean, more substantive things in terms of the political landscape. But he's still the challenger. It's still him versus the men and women of always in both parties and their inelastic ruling class mentality. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, the opening day of the convention this week, I mentioned it when it occurred back on Monday show, the rollout of Republicans for Biden as the uh, the messaging interference the left was running day one of the convention. Not much interference it provided, but it's still telling. Led by former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake and including former Illinois congressman turned Obama transportation secretary Ray LaHood and other such congressmen 
who uh, constituted a collection of envious status-mongering swampsters long past their sell-by dates, who are not upset about the travails of middle-income families during a period of uh, civil unrest combined with the pandemic. They're uh, not uh, distraught over the failure of inner-city schools to even open, much less educate. They're unnerved only by their loss of relevance. And they happily serve as sentinels of today's Robespierre's if it means they get their sinecures back and their status. They're appeasers, just as the so many Democrat socialist mayors of big cities have turned out to be, or even not so big cities like Kenosha. Uh, remember what Trump's value proposition was in 2016, not necessarily articulated by Trump, but described by historian and friend of the show, Victor Davis Hanson. I know all those elites on Wall Street in Hollywood, the media, and academia, and they're even worse than you think. And I'm the guy who's going to bring the bicycle chain to the Trump's, to the uh, Trump, to the Swamp's playground, to the Trump bicycle chain, to the Swamp's playground, on behalf of you, the people who play by the rules in flyover America, Michigan and Wisconsin and, and, and uh, Minnesota, even though he didn't win Minnesota, and Pennsylvania and Ohio, people who play by the rules in those parts of America who have been rewarded for playing by the rules, uh, their reward being fleeced by Republican and Democrat administrations since Reagan. And so what has changed? Well, first, the left's posture toward Trump supporters moved from a short sabbatical in search of understanding to a full-on purge of deplorables by any means necessary from whatever currently constitutes civil society, much of which is controlled by the institutions or certainly informed by the institutions they control. Remember that short sabbatical? Uh, the uh, search for understanding in the wake of the surprise victory by President Trump in November of 2016, the D.C. press corps types that were going to uh, examine how thick their bubble was and uh, trek out into the hinterlands to try to understand how somebody in exurban Wisconsin can uh, vote for Donald Trump. Somebody uh, outside of Detroit can vote for Donald Trump. Somebody in coal country or natural gas country in Pennsylvania could vote for Donald Trump. What, what's happening here? Well, that lasted a very short period of time until they decided that, to say we're going to be the resistance. And it was just a full on relentless onslaught with largely fictional storytelling for three and a half years bringing us to present. And those Trump supporters uh, caricatured as white supremacists, caricatured as what's the new phrase, credulous boomer rubes. There's no desire for understanding. There's a, des a desire for dispensing with. So there's only increased intensity with respect to the disdain the left has for the Trump voter. That's a difficult way to woo people to your side is to openly to be openly hostile of them and their interests and their existence, for that matter. That's one change. Second change, the left's predictions about a Trump presidency didn't materialize, but Trump's promises did. Remember what the left said. Actually, they continue to say in spite of the evidence, the evidence is sort of a nuisance to them. Trump would serve at the pleasure of Vladimir Putin. He was an existential threat to the human race. He'd bungle us into a nuclear war with Iran by pulling out of the Iranian glide path to nuclearization deal the Obama administration cut. He'd initiate pogroms, one minority group at a time. He'd use a gas guzzling rather than an electric golf cart. All sins of equal importance to the left. 
And, of course, he just passed the savings on to the science of his family real estate empire. Emoluments clause, anyone? Instead, ironically, it's those same hysterics who are presently conferring license to identitarian barbarians to scorch the earth and torch America's cities, isn't it? Meanwhile, Trump turned out to be a fairly conservative, uh, fairly conservative, fairly, yes, fairly conservative and fairly conventional politician in the sense of his willingness to cut deals and a fairly unconventional Republican in the sense that those deals would have to advance the commitments he made to the American people as a candidate. The DACA uh, case study is uh, illustrative here. Democrats happy to go along with an admittedly unconstitutional executive order by Obama giving children brought to this country illegally temporary status, uh, insulation from the enforcement of immigration law. And Democrats want a permanent status for the so-called dreamers. Okay, President Trump said, not only am I willing to do something uh, to provide permanent status for the dreamers, the 800,000 dreamers who sought and secured that status under the executive order, I'll also do you one better. The additional million people who could have sought that status but didn't, I'll fold them in and provide a pathway to permanent status for them as well. And in exchange, I want funding for the border wall so that we can do a better job of, of, of securing our border and thus enforcing federal immigration law until you, members of Congress, in your infinite wisdom, decide to change that law. No deal. Because, of course, Democrat socialists are more interested in mascots for use as demagogic fodder than they are in reasonable solutions to intractable issues. And they are exposed as such by President Trump on that issue. And then the third change is the left's sprint to socialism, perfectly encapsulated by Mayor Bill de Blasio, who famously said, and this is before he became a quickly dispatched with presidential candidate, there's plenty of money in this country. It's just in the wrong hands. The governing philosophy of Democrat socialists in 2020. And of course, uh, Biden and de Blasio at all will say they mean to target billionaires when they say such a thing. But what they actually do is target those without political power to strip them of their economic independence, as we've seen throughout the pandemic. Who's gained public sector plutocrats, their private sector, wealthy friends who say shut down the economy and shutter the schools because they have options. What they want to do is exhaust your options so you bend the knee before them and content yourself with what they allow you to have or to do. So what I uh, argue is that 2020 is very much like 2016 in the sense that three things have changed. Three material things have changed. Um, all of them. All of them reinforce why Trump was elected and provide the bases upon which he will be reelected. Stay tuned for uh, a discussion of the convention with uh, Brian Stiles, Republican congressman from the Kenosha area, as well as an update on the unrest and uh, that part of that swing state. We'll be back with more right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes commenting yesterday on uh, what should and should not be investigated between uh, the Jacob Lake police-involved shooting and uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse case, uh, the shooting and killing of 
two uh, rioters injuring of another. ECI's investigation is ongoing, but we don't need an investigation to know that Blake's shooting falls in a long and painful pattern of violence. And this is a pattern of violence that happens uh, against black lives too often across this country. And as you all know, we saw even more gun violence unfold on Tuesday night when two protesters were tragically killed and one other injured by gunshots. Someone that wasn't looking to keep peace, an outside agitator, someone who came in from Illinois with a long rifle, was able to just walk the streets freely like that's something normal that we should just come to expect. Let me tell you, that's not anything normal. We shouldn't come to expect it. We shouldn't accept it. Because what do you think is going to happen if you have an agitated man with a long gun walking down the streets thinking that he's some sort of peacekeeper? And that kind of behavior shouldn't be enabled either. And we have to deal with the devastating results of that. Uh, we saw that happen in Louisville already. We saw it happen in Charlottesville. Somebody ran their vehicle into protesters and Heather Heyer was killed. Now, Kenosha, Wisconsin is also home to that sort of tragic scene. We have to not ever want to see that happen again. Hey, Lieutenant Governor Barnes, what about in Seattle where uh, two people were murdered inside the Chaz Chop Autonomous Zone? A father of a 19-year-old who was murdered just filed a $3 billion lawsuit against the city. What about the, the violence there? What about uh, violence against police officers, including committed by Jacob Blake, resisting arrest prior to him being shot? Is that something that's relevant, the number of times that Jacob Blake had to comply with police officers before it escalated to the shooting? And while we're manufacturing characterizations of Kyle Rittenhouse, what about the actual records of not only the rioters who were killed, a convicted sex offender who was, uh, according to New York Times reporting, charging Rittenhouse, a, a, um, somebody who was convicted of unlawful use of a weapon and in public intoxication who was shot and wounded, the other individual also, the other individual killed, the other rioter killed also, a criminal record. Should we talk about Jacob Blake's criminal record and what he was doing at uh, his ex-girlfriend's house in the first place? If you want to provide context in the conversation, fine, let's do it across the board and let's separate what we actually know versus what the left is hoping is true. Hoping something is true versus what you actually know are two different things. Um, what's the evidentiary standard for making det determinations about prosecutions, about judgment calls? And it seems those are the questions that uh, Governor Evers and Lieutenant Governor Barnes and uh, federal politicians from Ayanna Presley to Kamala Harris to Joe Biden don't want to comment on. Isn't that interesting? For more on the topic of what's happening in Kenosha and uh, the larger issue of law and order, pleased to be joined by Brian Stile. He's a congressman for Wisconsin's first congressional district, which includes Kenosha. Brian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So um, what about uh, what uh, Lieutenant Governor Barnes has said and what uh, the combination of Evers and Barnes has said and done since uh, this uh, police-involved shooting? Any loss of life is, is tragic. But what's key here is that we allow a proper investigation of the facts and then allow the facts to lead us to justice. What we don't want to do is leap immediately into conclusion. That's what causes a lot of the problems. From the very first incident that occurred on Sunday where we saw Jacob Blake get shot, an incredibly difficult video to watch, I called for us to have a full and complete investigation. Do that quickly. It's an independent investigation. It's completed in the state of Wisconsin. It's completed by the Wisconsin Department of Justice. Let's get all the facts on the table and then follow the facts to get us to justice. The same in this case. I spent the day the other day in Kenosha, and let me tell you, when you see 
the tragic situation, when you talk to families who are scared, who are nervous, who've seen their livelihoods burned down, it is incredibly emotional what has occurred in the city of Kenosha. And I continue to call that we need to have public safety restored in Kenosha immediately. We had another relatively peaceful night last night, but again, that was after we finally got a sufficient amount of resources into the city of Kenosha. In addition to that, I wanted to get your reaction uh, moving beyond Evers and Barnes to uh, the prosecution side of the criminal justice system. And by contrast, at least from what I've heard, contrasting with Evers and Barnes, what I've heard from the Wisconsin Attorney General, what I've heard from the Kenosha County State's Attorney, that's much that's been much more encouraging. They've exercised the kind of restraint and presented sort of the approach that we're going to take to investigating and determining what is and isn't supported by the evidence. Both have seemed to me uh, struck the right tones with respect to enforcement of the law. I think most people realize that we, anytime you have a tragedy uh, that occurs and plays out in particular includes the loss of life, you need to have a thoughtful, thorough, independent, fair investigation to get all the facts. Then you need to allow the facts to determine how we carry out justice and justice needs to be completed. But to lead to conclusions, to make comments that only incite anger and violence is dangerous, it's wrong. And in particular, our top four law enforcement agencies in the state of Wisconsin put out a joint statement yesterday, really going and commenting and saying what is being said by our governor and lieutenant governor, cherry picking some of the facts, pushing forward some of the anger is both wrong, but in particular can be dangerous to personal safety of the folks that are living in Kenosha, and as well as our law enforcement officers who are there and sworn to protect the public safety in Kenosha. And that is a difficult job right now. So so do you have confidence then in the Kenosha County District Attorney, the state's attorney there, and, and what he has said and, and the approach that he's taking? All the information I have is to what the Kenosha District Attorney is doing is moving things along appropriately. I don't have any evidence that there's a problem there at okay, all. Good. I think what we're looking at is some challenging comments that are occurring by our governor, by our lieutenant governor, And I do push that our attorney general continues and completes these investigations as quickly as possible so we can see all the facts. Uh, Give it just talking a a second about uh, electoral politics. It is the season with the conclusion of the Republican National Convention last night, President Trump's acceptance speech, your reviews of the convention, what you found to be some of the the highlights, your your overall impression. I'll admit I probably saw a little bit less of the full convention than I wanted to. I've been like 24-7 on the phone with folks in Kenosha trying to get assistance. But I think this Republican message of keeping America safe, of keeping America healthy, and ultimately getting us back to work, who better to rebuild the United States economy than President Trump and Republicans and pro-growth ideas than us who have done it before. We got punched in the face by coronavirus. And now this is going to be about getting us back to work and putting forward the policies and explaining how some of the tax reform, how cutting regulation really unleashed the entrepreneurial spirit in America and got us one of the best economies we had seen in a long time, one of the lowest unemployment rates we had seen in a long time. And that through those policies, we've done it once, we're going to be able to do it again. And going on the offense, not on the defense, but even on the offense and explaining how conservative Republican policies move our country forward, how we can create a more perfect union. And I heard that time and again, and that's juxtaposed against where the far left wants to take us. I sit on committee, I sit 
with Maxine Waters and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on a regular basis, I see where the left wants to take our country, and I know where we need to take our country, and I think that was laid out pretty clearly during the convention. He is Brian Stile, representative for Wisconsin's 1st Congressional District, which includes Kenosha, as we were discussing. Brian Stile, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Following up on our conversation with Congressman Brian Stile, uh, last segment before the break on talking about Kenosha. A couple of more um, clips of remarks from the governor of Wisconsin, Evers, as well as Lieutenant Governor who you already heard from a bit, Mandela Barnes, uh, just in terms of the, um, the prototypical answers you're getting from Democrat socialist mayors in this country who are appeasing mobbery but trying to pretend that they're not. And so one of the things they do is pretend to not know things that they know. For example, uh, Governor Evers, Tony Evers, as to the question of why Jacob Blake was handcuffed to the bed in the hospital while he's receiving medical treatment for the gunshot wounds, as if this is unusual rather than standard police procedure. Uh, But this was made a big deal, and so Tony Evers feigns ignorance. I have no, uh, I would have no personal understanding why that that would be necessary. Certainly, uh, he's he's paid a a horrific price already being shot seven or eight times in, in the back. So I, I, I can't imagine why that's happening, and uh, uh, I, I would hope that we would be able to find a more better way to have him uh, get better and, and recover. Uh, yeah, the better way for him to get better and recover is to get the medical treatment he needs, which he's getting, being handcuffed to the bed, is because he is somebody who has an open warrant for his arrest and now, I assume, will be charged with crimes related to his resisting of arrest in the matter that led to the police-involved shooting. That's why. Not unusual. But you have to feign ignorance because you can't say, oh, this is a standard police procedure because there are special rules now in these circumstances. And then the flip side, or from more from Mandela Barnes, not the flip side, but just another example of the rhetorical artifice that's used, is uh, conflating issues, as Mandela Barnes was doing regarding what deserves to be investigated and not investigated. We played earlier with uh, Brian Stile. Uh, how about... Um, more conflation of the Jacob Blake incident with the the, the 17-year-old who's been charged with first-degree murder. You know, they talk about finding a knife inside of the car, not even on Jacob's, Jacob Blake's person, but this guy's carrying around a long gun, killed somebody, just walking freely, was able to get back home to Illinois, then, you know, we got a much bigger problem on our hands. Well, what's the problem there? I mean, yes, uh, I agree. He's 17 years old. He can't open carry in Wisconsin, so that's a problem. It's a problem that he was there in the first place. It's also a problem that the streets were turned over to the rioters, generally speaking, well beyond Rittenhouse. And uh, I guess so. the difference is uh, Rittenhouse has been charged with multiple crimes, and uh, you're blaming police in the situation with Jacob Lake. Would the situation be different if Rittenhouse had confronted the police officers and resisted arrest instead of uh, fighting it out in the streets in lawless Kenosha thanks to the decisions of the political civilian authorities? And these are real snake oil salesmen, aren't they? 
For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Raphael Mangual from the Manhattan Institute. Raphael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Boy, it's really difficult to get to uh, sensible discussions of uh, policing and criminal justice when you have the sort of fork-tongued rhetoric from political leaders like governors and lieutenant governors, for example, in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah, no, it really is. It's, it, it's becoming increasingly difficult to have a rational conversation about these issues, um, which, is, which is really problematic because I don't think we're going to get to resolution without confronting some of the really uh, important complexities uh, that are involved uh, when we talk about policing in, in dynamic environments uh, like what we saw with Jacob Blake. The reason we ought to really be concerned about the temperature of this debate is that if we don't make any progress, we're going to eventually see something controversial happen again. And you, know, you played a clip earlier where someone said, well, what we're seeing here is a pattern. It only looks like a pattern if that's what you focus on uh, periodically. Then, yeah, it, people people will understand that to be a pattern. But the reality of, of, of the situation is that in between, say, George uh, Floyd and, and Jacob Blake, there were millions of people uh, having millions of interactions with police without it. Um, and it's, it's important to keep in mind that when things go wrong, um, you know, that's, it's not just a clear-cut case of, you know, police racism or, you know, overaggression. Uh, and, and it's surprising to me, um, although I guess at this point it shouldn't be, that we see so many people in positions of power and influence willing uh, to publicly draw conclusions about cases uh, for which there's very little evidence um, that, that's been released to the public. And so I think everyone needs uh, to hope that cooler heads prevail and that, that we wait and see what the facts actually are. Uh, when we come back with uh, Raphael Mangual, uh, Deputy Director of Legal Policy at the Manhattan Institute, to uh, talk more about Kenosha, but then expand out from Kenosha because we still have the same problems in Seattle and Portland and around the country. And uh, we know the effort is organized based on some evidence that was uh, discovered in Kenosha. We'll start there right after this. This is the story of Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about uh, the uh, rioting and violence going on in Kenosha, but uh, not limited to Kenosha. It's still happening in Portland. This report this week, Seattle police are forced to kick their way out of an East Precinct exit on Monday night after rioters jammed it with boards and rebar and attempted to seal the door closed with quick-dry cement. As the door was being jammed, surveillance video shows several other people building a fire outside the building near the exit door in an attempt to set the building, the police precinct, on fire. Against uh, the backdrop of these incidents, this rolling violence, President Trump offered this on policing uh, during his acceptance speech last evening. Our noble, courageous, and honorable, we have to give law enforcement our police back their power. They are afraid to act. They are afraid to lose their pension. They are afraid to lose their jobs. And by being afraid, they are not able to do the job that they so desperately want to do for you. And those who suffer most are the great people who they protect and who they want to protect at an even higher level. When there is 
police misconduct, the justice system must hold wrongdoers fully and completely accountable, and it will. But when we can never have a situation where things are going on as they are today, we must never allow mob rule. We can never allow mob rule. We're uh, joined again by Rafael Mangual. Uh, he is the uh, deputy uh, director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute. And Rafael, is, is President Trump right when he says we have to give police back their power to enforce law? Oh, I think he's absolutely right. You know, we are in a lot of American cities right now facing a real crisis of police legitimacy here. And that's going to be problematic for several reasons. But chief among them uh, are the reasons that President Trump pointed out last night when he said that if police are genuinely fearful, that being proactive and getting involved in situations that might have the potential to become the next viral incident, then logically police are going to pull back from that. You know, a lot of police critics will, will sort of paint this sort of thing and, and, and of argument and say that, well, these are police sort of being crybabies and refusing to do their job in response to criticism. That's not what this is. This is real fear that they're going to lose their jobs, that they're going to lose their pensions. Police officers are human beings like everyone else. They have families that they need to provide for. And if they're not getting clear guidance, then I think what we're going to see is what we're already starting to see in so many American cities across the country, where crime is going to start to creep up as criminals fill the void that is left by police. Well, haven't we seen that? Haven't we seen that year over year already? I mean, uh, it was several weeks ago that we we saw a Wall Street Journal story that uh, murders nationally were up uh, 25% year over year. That's exactly right. And this snowball is only going to get bigger if we don't uh, do something to communicate to police what exactly it is that we want from them. The problem with this is, is that there's a growing segment of the public that does not want police to engage proactively, that does not believe that police are fundamentally a force for good. And the sad reality is, is that if they get their way, they're going to be imposing a whole new panoply of risk on exactly the communities that they purport to speak for. Um, and this has been probably the most frustrating aspect of engaging in this debate for me personally is the degree to which, you know, activists who don't really live in these neighborhoods, who don't have to deal with the day to day of high levels of imposing and pushing policies that are only going to endanger black lives. You know, I, I don't pretend to have good answers to how we get back to equilibrium, but we need to get there quickly. Speaking of uh, activists from out of town, we now have evidence that that certainly was the case, is the case in Kenosha still, where you had, uh, uh, when federal law, law enforcement was finally activated, when, when Governor Evers finally accepted support from Washington to set in, send in U.S. Marshals and the like, National Guardsmen, they find uh, vans with, you know, gasoline-filled canisters and other tools of violence that clearly were being shipped in for rioters to use to burn down what's not already burned down in downtown Kenosha and otherwise uh, in, uh, you know, induce mayhem. And we've seen this now throughout uh, America. You've got and Attorney General Barr has talked about this, the need to get to the people who are underwriting and financing the organized anarchy uh, which I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but that's what it is. It's it's organized in promotion of anarchy 
uh, in America's streets that, that you have this is going to go on because it is coordinated, it's financed, it's professionalized. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, and, and I think local police are finding you know, that, that they are, are being overwhelmed by, by the sheer numbers of folks that are, that are you know, bringing down uh, their own little versions of terror on these, on these uh, small cities. I mean, you know, the Kenosha Police Department is not a large department. It is not a super heavily resourced department. And I think people are, are starting to get a real sense of exactly how thin the blue line really is. And it really, that ought to, at least in the minds of reasonable people, I think, induce recognition of just how brave uh, the men and women who, who wear that uniform are in our country. Um, uh, and and, and on, but, that, on that score, too, on the police misconduct issue, since Trump mentioned it, of course, he's criticized because he didn't specifically mention Jacob Blake's name or George Floyd's name. You have to mention the names or you're somehow complicit with uh, uh, tacit acceptance of police misconduct or something like this, which is absurd. But that's the argument. Police misconduct, you know, how uh, much of a systemic problem is it? And as uh, Trump pointed out, police misconduct needs to be brought to justice. Those who engage in misconduct need to be brought to justice, and they will be. Is it uh, more often the case than not that they are? Oh, I think that's that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, it doesn't get a whole lot of attention, right? But, you know, police officers are consistently held accountable in in various ways uh, when they misbehave. Uh, I think what we're dealing with right now is a really overblown misperception uh, about how often that happens, right? Uh, I think a lot of people see uh, something like George Floyd or Jacob Blake, uh, and and they think that this characterizes the everyday policing in America. They think that, uh, you know, it's not just a matter of a few bad apples, but that police by and large are sort of trigger happy and violent and uh, you know, uh, hold uh, racial antipathy in their hearts. And I, I just don't think uh, there's any real evidence for that. I mean, for the most part, at least when you look at, at use of force, it's extremely, extremely rare. And they're talking about use of force of all strikes, both justified and justified. Unjustified uses of force, that kind of misbehavior is really only just a small subset of an even smaller whole. Uh, or, sorry, it's a smaller subset of, a, of, a, of an already small whole. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, again, when the media spends all its resources focusing on these uh, kinds of incidents, giving them wall-to-wall coverage, they paint the picture in the American mind that this is, a, this is the reality, that this is the run-of-the-mill kind of case, when in fact it is an extreme outlier. He is Raphael Mangual, fellow and deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute. Raphael, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me back. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We spoke earlier in the week with uh, Joel Kotkin, Chapman University, author of The Coming Neo-Feudalism, about uh, the twilight of big cities, why it's happening. It's not just the uh, endemic violence. Uh, more pronounced in some cities than others, more pronounced in my hometown of Chicago, for example. But it's also who's in control of the institutions that are supposed to be civilizing. Watching them behave, does that encourage you to stay or to flee? I'll tell you, stories like this in the Chicago Tribune are only scratching the surface. A story in the Tribune 
I've never had to think about my own safety in this way before. That's a quote. Shaken by summer looting and affluent neighborhoods, some Chicagoans are moving away. Sure, the violence is jarring. The response or lack thereof is what really is driving the exodus. People thinking, well, they're going to let this run wild, uh, the mayor, the police, because of the mayor's disposition. But it's even more than that. It's um, it's everywhere you turn. So, for example, and this is anecdotal, but it's nonetheless instructive because the Chicago Teachers Union won't say it in quite these terms as one Chicago art teacher named Billy Jackson said it. But that's their disposition as they advocate for a removal of Chicago police from Chicago public schools. Chicago teacher Billy Jackson, all police deserve to be dead. That's a quote. Comment all you want. You will be ignored. Hashtag facts. That's a Facebook post from teacher who, uh, per his profile, is in love with Jamaican rum and also has been an art teacher in the Chicago Public Schools since 2009, serving two schools on the south side. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, attitude that pervades the teachers' union and thus a significant, uh, significant distribution of the Chicago public school system that is uh, bandied about within neighborhoods in Chicago uh, leads people, even people who are uh, otherwise inclined to be supportive of so many of these sort of um, PC-addled, Champagne socialists in some of the more affluent areas of Chicago who are supportive, as I said, that uh, they're leaving. Uh, going back to this piece of Tribune, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The uh, woman named Amber, who requested her last name be withheld out of concern for her safety. This is just perfect. The uh, befuddlement of some people, complete lack of self-awareness, said she and her husband are actively eyeing a home near the Indiana Dunes National Park, about 50 miles outside of Chicago. They're a millennial couple, both 30 years old. They live in River North, which is a nice area of the city. We're just looking for safety. Uh, Amber and her husband are both nurses. The pair supports the Black Lives Matter movement and the uprising, but they also live smack dab at the intersection of the downtown unrest. I think that people forget that people do live here, too. It's not just the Gucci's and the Jimmy Choo stores. I completely support it all. You stealing shoes means nothing to me. That doesn't hurt me at all. It's just the fact that it brings more crime, and that does endanger me. This is the mentality that allows the rioting to continue. And that more than anything, even when Amber and her husband leave Chicago, is why Joel Kotkin is right. You're going to see a twilight of America's cities, not because of violence, but because of the barbaric mentality that has taken hold. The Stockholm Syndrome that afflicts big cities in this country under the lordship of feudal cultural Marxists. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcast there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Pelosi and Biden in the matter of uh, presidential debates, Nancy Pelosi taking the occasion of the last day of the RNC uh, during her press briefing to make uh, this uh, recommendation to her party's nominee. I myself just don't tell anybody I told you this, especially don't tell Joe Biden. I don't think that there should be any debates. 
I do not think that the president of the United States has comported himself in a way that anybody that has any association with truth, evidence, data and facts. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden was then subsequently asked about Nancy Pelosi's recommendation, whether he would take it by Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC. I'm going to, as long as the commission continues down the straight and narrow as they have, I'm going to debate him. Now I know for certain that they're going to, I'm going to try, I'm going to be a fact checker on the floor. For more on this, uh, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Brett Baer, of course, the host of Fox News' Special Report, weekdays, 5 p.m. Chicago time, author of the number one bestseller, Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War to uh, Brett, um, the uh, reintroduction of this idea that the debates may not go forward by Nancy Pelosi, the timing of this, is this um, an effort uh, to, one, minimize the importance of the debates and two, get people to uh, not place so much emphasis on them so they go ahead and start voting as soon as possible and not wait for the debates? I think that um, Nancy Pelosi does not operate in a vacuum. She was not asked a specific question about this. She was asked broadly about the election, and then she suddenly turned to this. Now, it felt to me like a trial balloon, like here it is, what's the reaction to it? Um, And then Joe Biden came in and said, no, I'm going to do three debates if the debate commission stays on straight and narrow. I do think that, um, you know, they're trying to figure out exactly how and what to do. Meantime, the debate commission is actually considering a fourth debate or moving the first debate up because you have 29 states that are voting. They are have access to ballots, absentee or mail-in ballots. Uh, you're talking about 211 million people. That's 338 electoral votes. They get to vote starting in September. And they will not have a debate until September 29th currently. Well, so, uh, so they're act- actively thinking about moving that. Well, so this maybe this was a trial balloon, this trial balloon, because there have been others that have been floated previously, including by Tom Friedman at The New York Times about debates. Maybe this one then was a message to the debate commission to say, don't change that first debate. Do not move that first debate up. Do not try and add another one. Maybe. You know, there's all kinds of uh, backwards Stuff. But all I'm saying to you is that Nancy Pelosi doesn't just offer that. Yes, she's right. in contact with the campaign. Right. She's in, you know, like this isn't just like a one-off. Like she wakes up and decides she's going to comment on the debate. This happens for a reason. Brett, uh, turning our attention to the RNC this week, uh, many of those who address the convention, ordinary Americans who did heroic things. I think of Clarence Henderson's speech on Wednesday evening talking about uh, his his and his friends initiating the uh, lunch counter sit in movement in the South against Jim Crow laws 60 years ago. I thought that was yeah. powerful. Too. I mean, there were another number of examples about that, about uh, men and women who uh, were ordinary but did heroic things or their ancestors did heroic things, which reminds Americans that heroic things can be done in this country by ordinary individuals. Listen, when you get to the end of the Republican convention, you feel good about America. You feel like, hey, wait a second, we're okay. We're going through some tough times, yes, but w- there's optimism here. We've done this before. We you know, settled the West. We, he, we did all this stuff, and that's where the dismount for the president's speech kind of really hit it. I think you know, it might have been a little long, but yeah. he got everything into uh, the pitch. And I think at the end of the RNC, you come to the 
the conclusion that, you know, we as a country are good people. And um, clearly they see internally that black votes, black votes are moving because there were probably four or five African-American faces every night. Yeah. Were were moving the needle, and he should uh, keep uh, Herschel Walker and Jack Brewer and Burgess Owens with him at all times. He should travel with them. Uh, I mean, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's how good they were. But, um, but on the production value, I just want to make this point too. You know, I mean, they have the advantage of the White House and the, the other venues they chose, Fort McHenry for Pence. But I think a key decision was um, having a live audience for Pence, for Melania and for the president. I just think it presents, uh, it provides a, a sort of energy you cannot get if it's just you to a screen. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I do think sitting there last night on the shop lawn, uh, looking at all these people, you know, some of them wearing masks and not some of them, not, not everybody was tested. Uh, we had been tested every week, you know, like every day uh, to get into our Fox bubble, to be able to sit on the same set. Um, so I, I do wonder about one, the image in the middle of this and two about what happens in 14 days, you know, if they get out of it without anybody having a problem, 2000 people, I think that that's great. But, um, obviously it was brought out. It, it didn't, it didn't. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, they, they tried the same thing with the rally in Tulsa and the science didn't just, just didn't check out to substantiate that claim. So it dissipated. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's a legitimate concern. But it also seems to me that you know, the message from the Trump administration is that, you know, we, we have to learn to live with this. You can't live in fear and um, OK precautions. But look, people are going to chart their own course on this thing. And that's the way we want to approach it. And if you're so fear addled that you won't come out of your basement, then you're probably a Biden voter anyway. <laughs> that's probably true. And that the stark difference in how it looked. Uh, DNC and RNC is really, really something. And, and, you know, I'll say it was outside, you know, the wind was blowing, blah, blah, blah. But if you're Wilbur Ross and you're 83 um, and you're shoulder to shoulder, I I don't know. It's just an interesting look in the midst of everybody concerned about wearing masks and um, spreading. Uh, this important op-ed, I wanted to get your reaction to. Um, I, I think it's important. Um, uh, the uh, commentator makes the point that uh, the 2020 presidential election is the stop the spread election of appeasement of barbarism, not just of COVID-19. And that Trump is actually in the same position in 2020 as he was in 2016. He's the challenger. And he mentioned it last night. He's the challenger to D.C.'s men and women in both parties of always and their inelastic ruling class mentality, which he mentioned specifically the ruling class. The commentator, uh, by the way, uh, this is in the Sun-Times. You may want to check this out, Brett Baer. It's very insightful. It's written by me. But, I mean, the, the ruling cl- he mentioned the ruling class at the outset. I, the idea that he—and he positioned himself as an outsider. He, Without saying it, he's essentially saying, I'm still challenging the established order in D.C., and I think that's a good market position for him. I mean, whoever wrote that out, that is uh, out to launch. But, um, <laughs> of no, course. Kidding. Yes, of um, course. Uh, no, listen, yeah, I, I, I think you're, Yeah, I think you're right on. I really do, which is why you've heard— uh, speaker after speaker in the Republican convention mentioned 47 years, 47 years in Washington for Biden. Uh, I think we probably heard that construction more than any other phrase uh, by different speakers. And the point is, is what Ivanka Trump said last night is that um, Washington did not change Donald Trump. Donald Trump changed Washington. 
And whatever you think about him, ideology aside, that is 100 percent true. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, Brett, before we let you go, uh, Olympia Fields, I happen to be a member of Olympia Fields. So when you come to town next time, I would love to have you as my guest at Olympia Fields. And, you know, let's check out our respective games and pay, play for something that makes it interesting for you. That uh, sounds good. I, there has to be something public. Like we have to deal no, with no, it no on question. the show. No question about it. No question about it. Um, okay. and, and, and how, how, I mean, I know you probably didn't get a chance to watch as much of day one as, as I did because you're in a... Well, because you're an important person, and I got nothing but free time. Uh, but but um, h- how about Olympia Fields holding up like a like a major course? You know, three uh, three yeah, guys under it par. Looks like, it looks like it's it's tough. I mean, I've, I have not played there, but uh, looking at those greens, they're bouncing firm and they're they're fast. And when Tiger is respecting it, I know, you know, it's it feels like a, a major. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. So, so we got we got a game at Olympia Fields. I'll round it out. We'll get some, you know, we'll get some players. We'll have a whole day of it. I'll get you a Shirley Temple and some lunch. You know, <laughs> the whole, the whole thing. I need a handicap check. I need a handicap like <laughs> authorization. Absolutely. No, it'll all be official. All right. we'll, we'll bring in the presidential debate commission to make sure everything's on the up and up. All right. Brett, all right. Brett, Brett Bear, Fox News' special report host and author of the bestseller, as all Brett books are. The bestseller is the latest one, Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Following on our conversation with uh, Brett Baer, since uh, he found uh, Ann Dorn's comments perhaps the, the highlight of the four-day Republican National Convention. It's difficult to disagree. There's a lot of competition there. I just thought, you know what? Um, We played some clips all week from the RNC. So many good speeches, um, so many good parts of speeches. Uh, How about just a a compendium of some of what I think are the highlights, and including what Brett Baer, and I agree, uh, was a highlight, Ann Dorn, the widow of uh, St. Louis Police Captain, David Dorn, uh, her address uh, prior to Trump's acceptance speech last night. I relive that horror in my mind every single day. My hope is that having you relive it with me now will help shake this country from this nightmare we are witnessing in our cities and bring about positive, peaceful change. How do we get to this point where so many young people are callous and indifferent towards human life? This isn't a video game where you can commit mayhem and then just hit reset and bring all the characters back to life. David is never, never coming back to me. He was murdered by people who didn't know and just didn't care. He would have done anything to help them. Violence and destruction are not legitimate forms of protest. They do not safeguard black lives. They only destroy them. You know, it's such a a great point and a very emotional one that Ann Dorn made, poignant one, about um, what is happening to our culture where you have people that are so indifferent, uh, so callous with respect to the lives of others. Uh, I was talking about this this week 
I mean, I, I live in Chicago, so we see this callousness, this indifference towards human life every day in a city that so far this year has averaged 83 shootings per week. One person murdered every 12 hours in Chicago this year. One person shot every about two hours. And uh, talking to my news guy in the morning show in Chicago that I do, Mike Scott, uh, on the occasion of this story that he was reporting of a a 14-year-old girl who was um, stabbed to death this week in Chicago. I mean, it's difficult to understand the soullessness that afflicts so many people in this country, so much of our culture. How else do you describe someone who can stab a 14-year-old girl to death? I mean, what the hell is going on? And it, this being uh, something that is no longer isolated events. You can't talk about isolated events when you have 500 people murdered just in Chicago this year, the majority of them younger, the majority of them black. And that's what Ann Dorn is talking about. Again, for those who have not followed, which I'm sure is not very many of our listeners, but uh, you're talking about uh, David Dorn, an African-American police captain, his wife, black woman. The kids that were there recognized during President Trump's speech as well. And President Trump said something that won't get a lot of play, but it's important because it's a huge philosophical distinction between conservatives and the Jacobin left. Our opponents say that redemption for you can only come from giving power to them. This is a tired anthem spoken by every repressive movement throughout history. But in this country, we don't look to career politicians for salvation. In America, we don't turn to government to restore our souls. We put our faith in Almighty God. That's a real distinction, isn't it? You know, your salvation, your, as well as your sustenance, comes through government or comes through God. As Chesterton observed, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything, and they believe that government can be their God. That is the uh, Boulevard of Broken Dreams right there. And uh, there were other speakers, as I mentioned at the outset. So speakers like Ann Dorn, who suffered terrible loss, but have something to take away, some guidance to provide going forward as she provided questions that we need to answer individually and collectively. Very good. Also, uh, just stories of overcoming great odds, as I mentioned with Brett Baer, uh, ordinary Americans who did heroic things reminding us that heroic things can be done in America. Burgess Owens talking about his great-grandfather, Silas. I'm Burgess Owens, shackled in the belly of a slave ship. An eight-year-old boy named Silas Burgess came to America to be sold on an auction block. By the grace of God and the courage of slaves who believed in freedom, Silas escaped through the Underground Railroad and settled in the great state of Texas. He went on to become a successful entrepreneur. He built his community's first church, first elementary school, and purchased 102 acres of farmland, which he paid off in two years. I'm here today, a candidate for Congress, because of my great-great-grandfather, Silas Burgess. Mm. What uh, uh, his great-grandfather was able to accomplish, what uh, black Americans were able to overcome, the black success stories. Uh, as Bob Woodson, friend of the show, likes to say, when uh, whites were at their worst in America, blacks were at their best. And that uh, goes for Clarence Henderson as well. Your salvation through government, Clarence Henderson and his friends in Greensboro, in Greensboro, North Carolina in the 60s, sparked the uh, lunch counter sit-in movement in protestation of noxious Jim Crow laws. Salvation through government? No, their subjugation was through government. Their salvation was a belief in God that gave them the courage to stand up for what was right, to stand up against institutionalized injustice. 
My friends had been denied service the day before because of the color of their skin. We knew it wasn't right. But when we went back the next day, I didn't know whether I was going to come out in a vertical or prone position, in handcuffs or on a stretcher, or even in a body bag. By sitting down to order a cup of coffee, we challenged injustice. We knew it was necessary, but we didn't know what would happen. And, of course, um, you know, that moral courage, the righteousness of the cause, combined with the courage to see it through, changed America for the better by eradicating Jim Crow laws and making us more more closely uh, the uh, vision of the people in, uh, imagined by the Constitution a people that are guaranteed equal protection before the law. And the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments, uh, fast forward to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, that uh, have been efforts to form a more perfect union that uh, needed to be undertaken throughout America's history. Not perfect, but striving to be better, uh, as well as a beacon the world over. And this, uh, how could you not be moved by Chen Guan Chang, Chinese dissident, imprisoned for standing up against China's ghastly one-child policy, gruesome, barbaric one-child policy, tortured, blinded, uh, escaped, found refuge in America. Greetings. My name is Chen Guangcheng. Standing up to tyranny is not easy. I know. When I spoke out against China's one-child policy and other injustices, I was prosecuted, beaten, sent to prison, and put under house arrest by the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. In April 2005, 2012, I escaped and was given shelter in the American Embassy in Beijing. I'm forever grateful to the American people for welcoming me and my family. The uh, courage and the contributions of so many. Uh, and this doesn't even get to Lou Holtz. It doesn't get to, to Sister Dee Dee Byrne. Uh, we played clips earlier. So many great moments. From so many of the non-politicians there to remind us how great America danprofshow.com Welcome back to the show. Going back to President Trump's uh, nomination acceptance speech last evening. Uh, He uh, spent a, a good deal of time framing, well, Joe Biden's record but also framing the choice. Started out, framed it a little bit in the middle, framed it at the end to, you know, say it, tell people what you said, and uh, uh, oh, say it, say it again, and then tell people what you said, sort of a model of speechifying uh, President Trump on, you know, the simple question that uh, one must ask themselves about Democrats. Joe Biden and his party repeatedly assailed America as a land of racial, economic, and social injustice. So tonight I ask you a simple question. How can the Democrat Party ask to lead our country when it spends so much time tearing down our country? And thus the choice. And this election will decide whether we 
will defend the American way of life or whether we will allow a radical movement to completely dismantle and destroy it. Yet gone are the days when uh, a conservative intellectual like Bill Buckley could uh, have a, a snifter of brandy and an enlightened discussion uh, with uh, John Kenneth Galbraith on uh, public policy, uh, it seems. And that's sort of the point of Saurav Amari's recent piece in The Spectator. Uh, a useful time, uh, some might not think, it, you know, focus on uh, the enemy specifically, but a useful time to also think about what the future of conservatism looks like, what the movement looks like, and how it informs the Republican Party, uh, both in a Trump second term, ostensibly, or uh, if uh, Trump uh, exits the stage in November. One of the two things is going to happen. He's got it's either four years or uh, four months, and uh, the discussion needs to be had. So Murray is the op-ed editor for The New York Post, and he's the author of From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. So, Rap, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, so, um, woke conservatives versus unwoke conservatives, to uh, borrow the lexicon of the left, but uh, imbue it with a different meaning. You suggest uh, this is a still sort of an internal battle. It's bigger than... Um, you know, Trump supporters versus the never Trumpers, which is a relatively small subset of conservatives. Uh, but there is a, a bigger battle for the soul of the conservative movement afoot, you suggest. Yeah. So um, I argue that there are woke conservatives and unwoke conservatives. And by that, I don't mean by woke. I don't mean what the left means. What I mean is conservatives who get it. Now, what's the it that they need to get? It's this sense. I think it's been obvious now in the streets in the way the unfairness of the liberal media, which is left behind all pretenses to, to fairness or objectivity or neutrality, in how they have attempted to undo the elect outcome of the 2016 election at turn for three and a half years, and now with, you know, outright, violent, you know, French Revolutionary-style radicalism uh, and, and, and really striking at all the symbols, all the elements of national legitimacy and identity so when that's when you have a movement like this either because of something in liberalism's own internal logic or that the election of donald trump made them kind of lose their minds or both i would argue should lead conservatives to realize that there is no returning to a kind of procedural golden age and especially it should lead them to recognize that a lot of the social forces that they used to think were with them are against them. So corporations aren't with us. Uh, you know, uh, capitalism. Uh, when it, it, you know, small business is a different story. But like the largest corporations that control the culture industry aren't with us. And so conservatism has to be uh, unquestionably more populist, tougher, and it needs to rely primarily on the state to further conservative ends, which is not comfortable for many conservatives who are reared on a kind of small government, small, limited government mentality. But the other side doesn't play that way. So I argue that in order for conservatism to have any chance, we need a kind of woke conservatism that's in many ways what President Trump did, but even going further and clarifying it, being more pro-working class, more anti-corporate in many ways, and just generally less nostalgic for, you know, Ronald Reagan's and, and Tip O'Neill's personal friendship, which is a touchstone for many kind of older conservatives of a kind of never Trump 
mentality. Wasn't it nice in the late 90s or wasn't it nice in the mid 80s when we all just kind of got along and all the differences had to do with marginal tax rates? That's all over. You're facing a revolutionary liberalism now. Yeah. Um, and then the question is, though, can you um, uh, address the concerns of uh, middle income Americans and blue collar Americans uh, without uh, relying on the state as the method to do so? And I want to pick it up there when we uh, rejoin with Sora Vamari, op editor of The New York Post, author of From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. We'll have more right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Sora Bamari. He's the op editor of the New York Post. He's the author of From Fire by Water My Journey to the Catholic Faith. And we were discussing his piece in The Spectator um, about, about uh, woke versus unwoke conservatives. Woke meaning conservatives who get that uh, the new sort of Trump populist philosophy of identifying the Republican Party as well as governing needs to be embraced. And the unwoke still think that there's the opportunity to go back to an era of firing line debates. Uh, So I agree with you that the firing line debates era seems to be over, in part because the left refuses to debate because to debate anything is to uh, is to legitimize something that is illegitimate. They're not interested in discussion at all. So it's hard to have a debate with yourself. But that's to some that's to some extent what we're having, it seems, within conservative ranks. And the stumbling block, I think, is what you pointed to, which is. Conservatives are uncomfortable with the state as a force for good, but we're going to need to embrace the idea that the state can be a force for good in order to serve the constituencies we need to have a majority governing coalition. Provide a little bit more detail on why that is and why it can't be actually reducing the footprint of government so that uh, the left is less able to social engineer during the periods in which they have control of it. Well, I would argue that that the size of government has over the past hundred years through the administrative state has just grown and there's no reversing that. Mm-hmm. So what I'm arguing is that this is just the reality we face. But then, our, but, those- but, but just, just one more point then and I'll let you finish. But if, sure. if, if we're going to concede that the state, the growth of the state is inexorable, then aren't we just arguing about the pace at which we're going to become a socialist nation? I, I think socialist capitalist is a tiresome dichotomy in many ways you know we already have a very mixed economy like i said we have a, a large state the question is you know and i'm i'm certainly not calling for abolition of capital or or anything or private property or anything like that the question is do conservatives have an answer to the precarity that is an underlying condition of working class life in this country mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean you need to expand the size of the state in every direction at all times. But there's this quality which which the Trump voters identified, even if they don't do it in this, these terms, which is, you know, rapid automation, limitless globalization, and this sense that the largest corporations that define our national life are unaccountable and ultimately can, within an instant, make a way of life that a middle-class way of life disappear. You know, or you can you can get very sick, and the nature of our health insurance system is such that you know a lot of people are just one illness away from you know crushing dead. Or and all of this means that the, the goods that conservatism is supposed to secure. Remember, the conservatism ultimately is about the goods like family, church attendance, community, 
solidarity, these things are threatened by the shape of, of, of our economy. President Trump tapped into this in a very intuitive way, and now you have conservatives who are doing it much more explicitly, like Senator Rubio, Senator Hawley, Tom Cotton in his own way, where they want to address, because the goal of conservatism isn't the market for its own sake. True. The market should right. serve human beings. Right. And so if you have that mentality, it doesn't mean that you're anti-market. You know, I, I live in New York City, and I see many, for example, on the issue of education, school choice, which is a kind of market mechanism, is great. It just means not fetishizing it in every dimension so that when, you know, a, a, a company brings in uh, foreign employees to train and has, has the outgoing, you know, about to be laid off employees train them, which is a case that uh, President Trump harped on in 2016, that that's unjust, and just because it's, it serves a kind of market mentality doesn't mean it's actually a good thing. So that's that's what I mean, but it, it certainly doesn't mean that there are areas in life where we need a smaller state, and there are areas in life where we need a more protective state, and just to, so the woke conservative is willing to be flexible. In some places, in fact, we could use more libertarianism. In other places, Let's not make a fetish of the market or not, let's not make a fetish of free, free enterprise ideology. So, uh, I mean, for example, just to try to make this concrete, um, there yeah. has to be, a, you know, in, in Marco Rubio's Common Good Capitalism, Josh Howley has an iteration of that, as you were just uh, referencing. Uh, we're going to have to uh, be a little bit more willing to support protectionist trade policies, the use of tariffs, the, the way that President Trump has used them. Um, but also, sure. there's no reason why yes. the Chinese should be building. Uh, first of all, before we get to even economic justice, there's no reason China, the Chinese should be building, you know, national security sensitive infrastructure, which was where we were headed. Right. You know? but, but, or, but, or, but, but 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 so, so separate and distinct from anything that has, you know, a direct national security implication like uh, 5G network. I, I concede that point. But on, on things that where there are. That, that are uh, raw materials or where there are, uh, are substitutes, uh, uh, you know, think about commodities like steel. That's sort of a different story. You, you, you're doing that to protect the steel industry and steel jobs more so than national security. And so, yeah, but also, I mean, there's, there's just way too much industrial supply. To, I mean, this all has national security implications, but it also has basic kind of economic justice implications. OK, fine. Companies that benefit from all sorts of sort of American infrastructure and, and rule of law and everything else that needs to start a business, but have no sense of responsibility to the American people. But it, but it, um, but it, it seems to me then there needs to be a rank order priority. So, you know, if, if, if you need to be, just a, as an example, again, more protectionist uh, with respect to trade policy, then you also need to be more aggressive with dismantling other parts of the state, uh, the, the things the state funds, it has no business of funding, the thing the state funds that runs that that, that uh, create institutions that uh, seek to undermine uh, American life and thus conservatism, like, I don't know, colleges and universities. Um, so oh, if, sure, if, sure. If, and tax the tax, the highest endowments is no reason why. Yes. Right. So, so tax them or, or, or puncture them. And that again, that, but that's a kind of. It's a different mentality than, uh, you know, let's say 1980s conservatism or zombie Reaganism, to use a kind of caricature, that, you know, doesn't, you know, you, you think about what institution is serving the goods of the family, the goods of the church, the goods of the American nation, mm -hmm. and which ones don't. And, and so have that mentality as opposed to the idea that, well, the state is just this neutral actor and whatever outcomes come about, you know, the, the left doesn't think like that. And all I'm saying is there needs to be more symmetry between left and right. You have a, a left that wants, that has a vision, which you and I probably disagree with in many respects, but it has a vision and a substantive vision. And then you have a right 
that's just committed to procedural rules, you know, and, 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 and market mechanisms, regardless of whether those outcomes are good for our people. And so I'm saying uh, it, let's have a, a symmetrical, a real political contest, not one half of the political equation is just kind of uh, neutral and proceduralist. He is Saurav Amari, op-ed editor for the New York Post, author of From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. Saurav, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Well, the D.C. press corps is um, showing themselves again in the coverage of the violence in Kenosha. Uh, you remember Ali Velshi covering uh, the violence in Minneapolis? Uh, and standing in front of a, a, bill, a, a burning building, reporting for MSNBC while saying this. I, I, I want to be clear in how I characterize this. This is a, mostly a protest. Uh, it, is not, uh, it is not, generally speaking, unruly. But fires have been started, and, and there's a crowd that is... Yeah, it's not generally unruly, but fires have been started, and there's looting. But it's not unruly, it's orderly mayhem and violence. Uh, CNN covered what happened in Kenosha this week similarly. Uh, CNN reporter, again, standing in front of a burning building. I mean, um, look, the Zucker brothers can't write scripts this funny, as CNN and MSNBC. CNN reporter reporting with a burning building behind him, and the Chiron on screen was fiery but peaceful protests. Can you have a fiery but peaceful protest? I don't mean rhetorically fiery. This is fiery in the sense of, Stuff is on fire. What you're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations that have been burning in Kenosha, Wisconsin, over the course shots fired? of the night. A second night since Jacob Blake was seen shot in the back seven times by a police officer. And what you are seeing now, these images came and come in stark contrast to what we saw over the course of the daytime hours in Kenosha and into the early evening, which were largely peaceful demonstrations in the face of law enforcement. They were largely peaceful right up until the point that they weren't. NPR headline, maybe they're sharing comedy writers with CNN. Peaceful protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, as demonstrators remember shooting victims. Right. They were peaceful right up until they weren't. Hey, it was peaceful. And then uh, as part of the coordinated effort, they moved to the next phase of the protest, the fiery phase. Yeah, that was Frank Drebin reporting for CNN and NPR and MSNBC. They can ignore it. Joe Biden can lethargically move to address it with the back of his hand, as he did this week, where he essentially excoriated the police the same way that Governor Tony Evers of Wisconsin did. And then so, oh, by the way, uh, rioting isn't good. Needless violence. Don't do that. And it will continue. And as long as it continues, uh, Joe Biden's electoral chances continue to decline. So it's going to be very interesting to see how. This unfolds over the next 65 days, because one thing is clear, those who have been appeased on the streets of America, uh, who are indulging in violence, 
who are rioting, who are making claims based on their identity, have been provoked into continuing doing exactly what they've been doing. And it won't take much to put them back on America's streets. And it may not be in the big cities that you're used to seeing them. It may be in smaller communities like Kenosha. It just takes one event, one event that can be misinterpreted, one event that can generate a knee-jerk reaction that will be supported and amplified by the press, as well as coward politicians. And you have somewhere else what happened in Kenosha this week. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com, and on social media, at Dan Proft Show. Going back to President Trump's nomination acceptance speech to close out the Republican National Convention this week, Uh, even though it was an hour and 10 minutes, which was probably twice as long as it needed to be. uh, He uh, did frame the choice right out of the gate, uh, responding to uh, his summation of the DNC and uh, allowing that to lead into the framing of the choice for Americans on November 3rd. Because we understand that America is not a land cloaked in darkness. America is the torch that enlightens the entire world. At no time before have voters faced a clearer choice between two parties, two visions, two philosophies, or two agendas. This election will decide whether we save the American dream or whether we allow a socialist agenda to demolish our cherished Destiny. And as we uh, spoke about a bit last hour with Brett Baer, uh, one of the uh, points that was made uh, somewhat subtly, but repetitively, so how subtle could it be, was the number 47, Biden's 47 years. And this was Trump setting up his argument that despite four years in the White House, he's still really the outsider against the insider class. For 47 years, Joe Biden took the donations of blue collar workers gave them hugs and even kisses, and told them he felt their pain. And then he flew back to Washington and voted to ship our jobs to China and many other distant lands. Joe Biden spent his entire career outsourcing their dreams and the dreams of American workers, offshoring their jobs, opening their borders, and sending their sons and daughters to fight in endless Foreign wars, wars that never ended. Four years ago, I ran for president because I could not watch this betrayal of our country any longer. Uh, That really was the Biden takedown message with an addition later, as as we've discussed at some length, uh, of the difference in approach when it comes to uh, mob violence on the streets of America between the two. For more on all of this, uh, we uh, pleased to have with us again Andy Krull, who's the Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone. We talked to him about the DNC last week. We talked to him about the RNC this, this week. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's great to be back. So, um, you know, how effective was uh, Trump and the Republican Party, do you think, in, in terms of uh, responding to what the Democrats presented last week and as as well as um, – 
setting up the choice they want to implant in the minds of uh, American voters? I think anyone who watched the last four nights of this Republican convention or even just tuned in for President Trump's speech last night came away with a really clear sense of where the battle lines are drawn, what the Democrats' vision, philosophy, mission statement, if you will, is for the next two months till Election Day and what the Republican equivalent is. You know, I think you saw President Trump last night lay out very clearly how he's going to go after Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris. You know, they are radicals, that this is a socialist agenda or, or that the Democratic uh, standard bearers are, you know, in thrall or, or, or in, you know, possessed by the sort of leftist part of their party in that, you know, the chaos that you've seen in some of the streets and cities of America is they're doing, there'll be more of it. The, the, the big thing for me is can President Trump deliver on that message? Can he convince people that Joe Biden, in the same breath that the president says he's a Washington creature, He's been in Washington for 47 years. He's in the pocket of special interests. Can he then in the next breath convince people that, oh, he is also a radical socialist and he is going to lead to chaos in America? So I think we got a really clear sense of what the opening arguments are, really, for the rest of this election. But the question now is, how can President Trump really make this case and, and make it convincingly? To the American people. Maybe uh, he's going to have help. Uh, Trump is that is making that case. And, and I think you're right. I think it's when they say he's a creature of the ruling class. He's establishmentarian, but 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 he's a radical socialist if he hasn't been a radical socialist for the pre- previous four decades. And I guess the point is to say the way you are a creature of the establishment, the way that you survive five decades is by uh, being a bit of a chameleon and changing as the winds blow in a different direction. And that's what Joe Biden is doing. And you're seeing this play out in uh, how people are accosted, leaving the Republican National Convention by the clockwork orange kids on the streets and not just uh, not just convention attendees, but Senator Rand Paul and his wife, for example. It seems to me those sorts of incidents, uh, Joe Biden's relative torpor in response to the violence on the streets suggests that you know, he's this creature of D.C. He's beholden to the new set in D.C. The new set are radical socialists. And if that's who Joe Biden needs to align with in order to win the presidency, then that's what he's going to do, as you're seeing him do. That would be the argument. Yeah. You know, I I think you've laid out the argument really well in terms of what President Trump and his allies are putting forward. I honestly think it is an extremely tough hand to play. Mm-hmm. And if it's Joe Biden is a shapeshifter. He is sort of, you know, changes to suit his new masters. I mean, I, I, I think it's tough. I think it is a tough argument. I think that President Trump, I really think President Trump has to make the sales pitch of a lifetime to get this argument across. And he's got a much higher bar to clear than Joe Biden does. If you're just kind of, sort of comparing the, the, the Democratic message and the Republican message side by side. I mean, Joe Biden is basically telling people, you've been on a roller coaster for four years. You thought you were getting into something that you, turned out to not be the case. Vote for me. I'll get you off the roller coaster and we'll try to settle things down. And I'm not, I'm not endorsing that, me personally. I'm just trying to 
characterize yeah, what he's what he's what he's arguing. What Joe Biden is saying. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. The, so, yeah, yeah. This, this sort of return to normalcy argument that uh, has been bandied about in terms of characterizing it. Dan Henninger wrote about it in the journal the other day. I thought uh, persuasively as well. But you're right. I mean, it's not it's not a, sort of a one sentence explanation. It requires a little bit more. Uh, texture. And so that always complicates things in the context of a political campaign. So uh, perhaps the approach would be rather than saying um, uh, you're on a, you know, Joe Biden is saying you're, you've been on this roller coaster and you get off and both feet planted firmly on terra firma with me. And the response is more simply, you've been on a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, some of these events are exogenous, like the pandemic. Some of them are institutional, like, you know, my fights with both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, but it's on your behalf. And oh, by the way, uh, you're just trading my roller coaster uh, that's trying to get you to a certain place to their roller coaster that's getting you to a place you don't want to be. And their roller coaster is, again, the violence you see playing it out on the streets of America, which doesn't show any signs of subsiding and thus will be present in people's minds as they go to the polls, you know, you know in some cases, well before November 3rd. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, you know, there I think there were parts of President Trump's speech that will, I think, resonate and certainly resonated with me in terms of trade deals that did not suit the American worker that led to offshoring of jobs, votes in favor of the financial services industry that have led to the sort of income inequality that we see in this country at this point. I mean, Joe Biden has definitely been on the wrong side of the Iraq war. It's an easy one. I mean, there's a reason probably that there was no discussion of foreign policy at the Democratic National Convention because Vice President Biden doesn't have a particularly great story to tell there. Right. Um, so, yeah, I can see the argument there. I, I think coming out of this convention, the lines are drawn very clearly. The opening arguments have been made. The debates, for me at this point, are going to be, if not the closing arguments, probably the at least key inflection points of the rest of the campaign. I just think President Trump, he, he, this is not 2016 again. I think the credibility of the argument that I'm an outsider who will go in and shake things up, he can still make that argument in some ways, and he's going to clearly. I think he's got a much steeper hill to climb, though, having already been in office for four years. And so I'm really curious to see how they try to calibrate that argument in the next 60 days to try to preserve that image of him in some way, as someone who will still shake things up and that Joe Biden is, you know, the wrong choice who is just going to take us back to the failed policies of, I don't know, the nineties or something. I'll tell you what, um, can I, can I hold you over? Cause I want to pick up on that. This idea, it's not 2016 because this is really a, um, a discussion that's, uh, uh, that's happening in terms of whether what we see now yep. is 2020 is a repeat of 2016 with more intensity um, so let's start there. Uh, we'll come back with Andy Kroll, who's the D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone, right after this. Does that make me crazy? Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Trump uh, uh, was criticized as has been, been the Republican Party generally for, for trying to ignore the pandemic. I think this was in part some media's uh, D.C. press course effort to say 
You accuse the Democrats of ignoring violence. Well, you ignore the pandemic and uh, any sort of uh, cogent response to what the way forward is. Well, President Trump actually uh, did tackle the pandemic, both his characterization of Joe Biden's plan to deal with it, as well as his own first Trump on Biden. The cost of the Biden shutdown would be measured in increased drug overdoses, depression, alcohol addiction, suicides, heart attacks, economic devastation, job loss, and much more. Joe Biden's plan is not a solution to the virus, but rather it's a surrender to the virus. And of course, that was in response to Biden saying over the weekend that if the scientists in the ABC interview he did with Kamala Harris, that if the scientists said to shut the country down, he'd shut it down. That was uh, riffing off that. President Trump now describing his approach. We are focusing on the science, the facts, and the data. We are aggressively sheltering those at highest risk, especially the elderly, while allowing lower-risk Americans to safely return to work and to school. And we want to see so many of those great states be open by Democrats. We want them to be open. They have to be open. They have to get back to work. They have to get back to work, and they have to get back to school. Most importantly, we are marshalling America's scientific genius to produce a vaccine in record time. Under Operation Warp Speed, we have three different vaccines in the final stage of trials. Right now, years ahead of what has been achieved before, nobody thought it could ever be done this fast. Normally, it would be years, and we did it in a matter of a few months. We are producing them in advance so that hundreds of millions of doses will be quickly available. We will have a safe and effective vaccine this year, and together we will crush the virus. For more on this, we're pleased to be rejoined by Andy Kroll, who's the Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone magazine. Andy, um, on the addressing of COVID, uh, something the president had to do, he did uh, in general terms. It would have been, I think, better, as uh, my friend Rich Lowry at National Review argued to bring one of the admirals out who's actually been in charge of the logistics and provide you know painstaking detail of everything the federal government has done from uh, March to present to, to perhaps uh, recast people's understanding of what the federal response has been. But I know with 65 days to go, that's a little bit past post. It seems to me what he's trying to do is two things. One, provide some optimism about a vaccine, and that may be the only thing that uh, would change public opinion substantially between now and November 3rd on his handling of the pandemic and then to muddy the waters a little bit by suggesting you may not give me high marks essentially, but uh, Joe Biden saying lock everything down again. You can't go through this. We can't live like this much longer either as people are frustrated, not just about business reopenings and jobs, but also about their kids' schools. I think we heard from the president on the coronavirus pandemic, basically the two cards in his hand that he could play. Obviously, he was going to highlight what Vice President Biden said about a lockdown. No one wants to go through another lockdown, even if we get to a point where that's what the public the public health experts recommend, just because that is such a economically crushing, not to mention soul crushing experience. And then on the vaccine, Operation Warp Speed is really the only high profile federal initiative that the Trump White House has sort of poured into has going on now into this COVID response effort. And so I'm not surprised that there that he that he touted that because frankly, anything before Operation Warp Speed, the, the president doesn't have a particularly good story to tell. I mean, he, in some ways, I think he is, getting to Rich Lowry's point, one of the worst spokesmen in his administration, ironically, in the commander in chief, 
for talking about the coronavirus response just because he's been so all over the place in his comments going back to the first interview of the gave to CNBC in late January. So I think he you saw an effort in his remarks to try to highlight a few key things like the vaccine development. It'll be a real turn of events if there is some sort of vaccine candidate that emerges before the election. From the scientific perspective, that seems unlikely. But if it were, that would obviously be a major turning point in the race. You know, and I think from a visual perspective, from a presentation perspective, all four days you saw an effort to either kind of gloss over the pandemic. I think, you know, economic advisor Larry Kudlow's comments were honestly kind of contemptible, referring to it in the past tense. I mean, Donald Trump isn't even doing that. So there was a bit of an all over the place element there. But from what we heard from the president, you know, that was pretty predictable. I think the question really now is a vaccine or some other therapeutic treatment. Is there something that might come out before the November election day or not? And, and what is the effect of the race? Or what is the effect of that on the race? I wanted to go back to what you were talking about before the break. And, and you said uh, that 2020 is not 2016. Ron Bromstein uh, writes in The Atlantic, the Flight 93 convention, picking up off the Flight 93 election op-ed in 2016 that uh, was so impactful, though, by written by Michael Anton over at Claremont Review of Books. And um, so he suggests that uh, what you're going to see is a call to arms for the last 60 days, Flight 93. You heard President Trump say most important election in American history, the one upcoming. And, um, you know, he characterizes the the uh, call to arms as very dark and apocalyptic. Ron Brownstein obviously coming from the left on the topic. But nonetheless, the Flight 93 convention suggests that um, there's a belief, at least among the Trump folks, that this is a bit of a rerun of 2016. But Trump having a record now and a record of mainly keeping the promises he made or or acting in furtherance of those promises so that should put him in a stronger position as the left seems to have you know, sprinted towards socialism in the intervening four years and sort of doubled down on their views uh, that it were advanced in 2016 as well. So that's that's one perspective on it. You don't seem to agree with that. Why do you disagree with that and think this election is so different? Because the president has been in office for four years. And I think if this pandemic had not happened, the economy would almost undeniably be in a much stronger position than it is now. Right. And the president would have a much stronger argument to make. You know, when I was going out on door to door canvassing efforts with grassroots groups, now a lot of that stuff's happening by phone. You know, and this is in swing states. This is with independent voters or some cases, 2016 Trump voters who have now gotten a little wobbly on the president. You know, what I hear a lot is this this president ran on a promise in 2016 that he was going to shake things up. He was an outsider. He was not from the political establishment. He was going to do things that generations of Democratic and Republican politicians had not done when they had got to the highest office in this country. And now what you hear from those voters, it's a mix of things. There are definitely some who say the Democrats and the media have stymied this president at every turn and never even gave him a chance. And I think you'll see those people either returning to the president or just looking for a little more convincing to return to the president's side in 2020. But you also hear a lot of people, and I heard this a lot in the upper Midwest, especially Wisconsin, my home state of Michigan, Minnesota, a, a feeling of like, you know, he had four years. My life hasn't really changed. He still has that outsider vantage point. But, you know, he's surrounded by a lot of Washington people, too, lobbyists or sort of entrenched political types. And like, I, we don't feel like we got, you know, any return on our investment. Mm. So that's why I think that sort of 2016 redux 
that sort of continuing to position himself as a, a populist or an outsider, it's going to, you know, he's going to do it. It's still going to resonate with some people, but I don't think it quite has the currency that it did four years ago. He is Andy Kroll. He's the Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for Rolling Stone Magazine. Andy, always appreciate your perspective. Thanks for joining us again. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Well, on the matter of race relations, the uh, DNC and the RNC couldn't have been any different over the last two weeks. Racial healing, according to the Democrat Socialist, comes through forever apologizing for things that you hadn't done. I mean, this is the anti-racism agenda for the uh, Republican convention, including for the many black speakers. It is about uh, shared values, uh, not just uh, with respect to family, but starting with family. And uh, so on the topic of race relations, one Michelle Obama felt the need to weigh in this week after her speech last week at the DNC. Michelle Obama on her podcast, extrapolating from an anecdote that may or may not be true. Let's cons- let's just say it's not apocryphal for the purpose of argument and uh, making a uh, sweeping generalization about white people in America and how they view black people. See if you find this helpful. Danielle and I, when the girls were little, this is when I was first lady. Mm-hmm. I am Michelle Obama, yes. the first lady of the United States. Of and, America. Of America. <laughs> and we had just finished the, taking the girls to a soccer game. We were stopping to get ice cream. And I had told the Secret Service to stand back because we were trying to be normal, trying to go in. It was Haagen-Dazs, wasn't it? Exactly, Haagen-Dazs. And there was a line. And once again, when I'm just a black woman, I notice that white people don't even see me. They're not even looking at me. So I'm standing there with two little black girls, another black female adult. They're in soccer uniforms. And a white woman cuts right in front of us to order like she didn't even see us. And the girl behind the counter almost took her order. And I had to stand up because I know Danielle was like, well, I'm not going to cause a scene with Michelle Obama. <laughs> That's exactly right. I was like, mm-hmm. I do not so want I stepped up and I said, excuse me, as if you don't see us four people standing right here. You just jumped in line. She didn't apologize. She never looked me in my eye. She didn't know it was me. All she saw was a black person or a group of black people, or maybe she didn't even see that because we were that invisible. I can tell you a number of stories like that when I've been completely incognito during the eight years in the White House, walking the dogs on the canal. canal. People will Mm -hmm. come up and pet my dogs, but will not look me in the eye. They don't know it's me. And it's, it, you know, what, what white folks don't understand, it's like that that is so telling for a reaction to that and a conversation about um, the left's view on race relations and how to improve them. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend Will Riley. He's an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University and author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks for joining us again. Always uh, glad to be back on the show. How do you react to uh, Michelle Obama's uh, story that leads her to the general conclusion that white people in America don't see black people? They don't see people that are a different color than they are. 
Well, that's an argumentative technique that in general, as a teacher actually, really annoys me. Taking an anecdote that itself may be dubious and generalizing from that to sort of broad social trends. You see this all the time on all sides, you know, cop slash black guy slash white guy once punched me, race war coming. Um, And it's important to realize that the plural of anecdote isn't data. I mean, I myself am a middle to upper middle class black man. I jog, walk down the streets pretty frequently. I mean, we met at a business event in D.C. I I don't notice that people don't make eye contact or shake my hand or give me one of those COVID elbow bumps or something like that. I don't think broadly, if you asked a bunch of black joggers, you know, are people more reluctant to move out of the way or say hi than they would be with a white or Asian American jogger, you'd find any kind of conclusive results there at all. One thing that I do notice, actually, that I think is very fascinating, obviously there's real racism, I'm not trying to minimize that, but a couple of different times um, as an educator in my classes, I've given students just a short little quiz of what's called local hostility. White and black kids had the exact same number of encounters, but black kids chalked up about half of them to racism. So I think that because of the idea that there are a lot of racial tensions in the country, if you are a black citizen, you're very often almost taught to attribute those to prejudice. Oh, that's that's the conflict with the whites again. In reality, if someone's coming home from a long soccer game, it's a hot day, they're going to an ice cream store, they might just cut in line. They might not necessarily notice that the person in front of them is, you know, an Asian American bisexual housewife or whatever <laughs> all that might be. They might just want to get a slushy. So, I mean, I, I think the response and sometimes to a that slushy which, is just a slushy is what you're saying. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of the things like, um, you know, it, it is possible to be a jerk or to be impolite, but not be racist. Just you're just a jerk. And, and really, the, if the, the race of the person to whom you're being a jerk or impolite is really irrelevant to your disposition to be impolite. That, that's a concept that that is lost. The possibility of that is lost in these discussions. I, I hear you. When we come back with real Will Riley from Kentucky State University, associate professor of poli sci there. I want to get to uh, your uh, takedown of uh, Robin D'Angelo's white fragility, which has become uh, the Bible for the identitarian left. More with Will Riley right after this. Is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Will Riley. He's an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, historically black college, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. And, uh, uh, Will, before we get to uh, your piece on, on white fragility, the Robin D'Angelo book, I just wonder um, how you receive the uh, Democrat National Convention's discussion on race and racism as compared to uh, what you heard from a lot of black Americans from various walks of life about uh, race relations uh, and actually what President Trump has done in advance of not just historically black colleges, but uh, black Americans more generally. Well, I think this is a complex conversation. I have what until about 2010 under Mr. Obama would have been considered the conventional liberal perspective on race and racism, which is that I'm I'm not racist. I'm anti-racist. I'm in an interracial relationship. I wouldn't have a bigot in my home, shut down racial talk from either side during things like basketball games, so on. But 
that view of racism has been replaced by this idea of systemic or institutional racism over the past 10, 12 years. And I think there are a lot of real problems with that concept. And I think you saw that concept really on dis- throughout the DNC. They made some good points, to be fair. They made some good points about traditional racism as well. But the idea of systemic racism is essentially, if you read through the new Jim Crow or white fragility, at its root, that there must be a subtle hidden prejudice in our systems because there are still large performance gaps between groups. If you look at, for example, the number of black men incarcerated, or if you look at performance on something like the math SAT. The problem with this argument is that adjusting for non-racial variables like crime rate and study time totally explains those gaps. We don't need to have to look, we don't need to look for some kind of hidden prejudice on math tests. Uh, The highest scores on the SAT, by the way, not white people, uh, Asians and Nigerians. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very hard argument that the USA is somehow secretly prejudiced against, you know, Anglo whites and toward Koreans and West Africans. I mean, when you really start examining this, that doesn't make any sense. But, yeah, I, I think that you saw a great deal of these kind of systemic institutional arguments at the DNC. And to me, essentially, when you unpack them, they fail. First, for kind of a wonky academic reason I just gave, but secondarily, just on a hard numerical basis. I mean, Michelle Obama, who's someone I don't dislike, but I gave a speech where she said there's a never-ending list of black people over the past couple of years that have been killed by police officers while unarmed innocent. That's factually false. The total number of unarmed brothers or African-American men that were killed by police last year was 14. Um, The Washington Post, which is not a hard right outlet, uh, maintains a comprehensive police shootings, police killings database. You can find that just by Googling it. So a lot of these claims really aren't true. And I, I think the claim of systemic, institutional, et cetera, the white gays, so on, racism is made so constantly because it's the argument that's needed to shore up this entire system of programs that are being advocated for. I mean, not only continuing racial preferences, but reparations, for example, moving forward into new racial ground. Uh, To convince white Americans that we need a doubling of affirmative action programs in 2020, you're going to have to identify a boogeyman that's out there somewhere. And actually just walking down the street and looking at the interracial couples shopping together, it's kind of hard to do that. So you come up with this vague thing, this this ghost in the machine. And on the uh, Republican side, um, while there was talk, generally speaking, of, as I said at the outset, shared values, um, a lot of the black American speakers that had uh, relationships with President Trump spoke more more specifically about Trump and his sort of unfair treatment, in addition to what they uh, would argue are his accomplishments, uh, starting with Herschel Walker on night one, talking about, you know, this is a guy I've known for 37 years. I grew up in the South. I know what racism is. Um, and uh, you're not going to tell me that a guy I've known for 37 years is somebody he's not. Uh, Jack Brewer, Minnesota Vikings, self-described lifelong Democrat, said the, said something similar in it, as well as uh, advancing uh, a debunking of the Charlottesville lie, which Joe Biden has based his entire candidacy on. First of all, obviously, both parties do put a face on. I mean, the first night of the RNC was entirely photogenic, mainstream people of color. And that that's done to present a different image of the party. I mean, I I don't think the Republican Party, you know, I voted Republican in the past, but I don't think the Republican Party is 80 percent black and, you know. No, clearly. Feminist, Indian-American and so on. But but, 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 yeah, one thing on that, though, too, you're right about that. 
that. And is that is it part theater? Yes. But it's also part theater for the point of saying, no, we're not 80 percent African-American, but maybe we'd like to be. We don't we don't care about the composition. We care about the shared values. And we can't let the other side get away with the caricature of the Republican Party that somehow people of color are not welcome. That's just not true. It's not fair. And so we're going to come over the top on you on the topic. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was actually gonna be the, the next the next part there. No, I mean, obviously, those are people. Herschel Walker's known at Donald Trump since the generals. I think that essentially what, what the Republicans are trying to do, and I think they do this pretty effectively, the Democrats have gotten the big tent has grown so big they're now facing a balkanization problem mm-hmm. because there's nothing inherently that a lot of the groups in the DNC coalition have in common. I just have some fun with this for a second. I mean, you know, hardcore feminists and trans women. Um, illegal immigrants and union laborers, uh, traditional Muslims and sex workers. I mean, when you look at the panel at the DNC, there's a lot of potential clash there. So the idea has to be we're all unifying against something. And it's sort of this idea of maybe not the white anymore, but the man in the suit, the traditional American. We're the new coalition. And the Republicans kind of said, well, okay, we'll be the we'll be the guy in the suit. We welcome we welcome everybody. This is, you know, this is the black individual speaking for this point of view. This is the Indian American female individual speaking for this point of view. So, yeah, I I thought they put a pretty diverse face forward. Um, in terms of, yeah, I don't, I don't really think there's much more to say on that. I think that that went pretty well. Um, I, I say the RNC, in terms of the obvious constraints placed on the, the conventions by COVID, went better than the DNC. There were fewer cringe moments. I mean, you know, YouTube videos of Billy Porter and so on, but both were not. I mean, thinking of Guilfoyle's speech to the empty room, the yes. best is yet to come and so on. Yes. Um, both were, that. by the way, that, I've given a lot of pretty major speeches. That would have gone over very well in a convention hall. Yeah. Um, It's important not to just roast her for that. I think she forgot that there's nobody there. Yeah. But uh, essentially, of the two events, I'd say the RNC was better planned. And their idea of diversity is kind of a contained diversity. Everyone is welcome within this American structure, whereas the Democrats' idea is sort of everyone is unified together against this this boogeyman of racism or the, the traditional older society that we're trying to replace. He is Will Riley. He's an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. And I will uh, tweet out his uh, commentary that we were discussing in commentary, a fragile argument at Dan Prof Show as well. Will, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Oh, Dan, as always. Thanks for having me on. Take Have a good day. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. How about an athlete uh, who you can actually uh, compliment in terms of standing against the mob? Well, you saw a couple at the RNC this week. Brian Erlacher, Hall of Fame linebacker for the Chicago Bears, has uh, now been targeted by the the social media Jacobins at minimum. He uh, tweeted out in response to all these professional athletes and uh, professional sports leagues canceling playoff games. Brian Urlacher tweeted, Brett Favre played the Monday night football game the day his dad died through four TDs in the first half and was a legend for playing in the face of adversity. NBA players boycott the playoffs because a dude reaching for a knife wanted on a felony sexual assault warrant was shot by police. Uh-oh. 
uh, about the uh, Jacob Blake incident or about the soft virtue signaling ninnies. I mean, seriously, the Mets and the Marlins, WNBA, the WNBA champion, Washington Mystics, I guess that's their name, uh, wore shirts to their initially scheduled game that spelled out the first and last name of Jacob Blake, a 29-year-old, you know, the Jacob Blake. Seven holes on the back of their shirts representing the seven times Blake was shot. Did they have a knife on the front of the shirt to represent the knife he was reaching for? This lionizing of Jacob Blake, much like this sort of martyring of George Floyd. Uh, the, I'm sorry George Floyd was killed. I'm, I'm sorry it rose to the level where Jacob Blake was shot. I, I don't want those things to happen. But are, are these individuals now American icons? And frankly, it's about time some big tough guys in professional sports had the stones to call things how they are. People don't know anything and they give no consideration to the complicating positions of a Black Lives Matter, the impacts, as well as the particulars of any given case that they're told to hold up and then they turn around and do their performance art. The leverage they have is to deprive America of their entertainment. Go ahead. I think a lot of Americans are finding out they don't feel so deprived if they otherwise have to be lectured illegitimately by people who they're interested in watching performance in a specific context, a basketball game, a baseball game, a golf tournament, what have you. Uh, So maybe Brian Urlacher encourages more people to stand up and say, you know what, let's stay in our lane. Hey, everybody is American. They got a right to comment. Say what you want. Go ahead. But also there are repercussions to it. And uh, don't be surprised when you're called out for being as ignorant as you display yourself to be. I was watching something on um, flipping through the stations looking for golf, actually, yesterday. Uh, and on ESPN, like this, this NBA and, and I think maybe it was NBA TV, like a pre-playoff game. One of the hosts was interviewing one of the box players. And she's like breaking out in tears about what this NBA player, this Bucks player has to go through. I, I, I mean, honestly, could, could, the, could this this is just an endless display of self-indulgence by people who are already wildly indulged by the American public. And maybe all that changes because of their conduct. Well, that would be a happy unintended consequence, wouldn't it? Thanks for listening to the Dan Prof Show all week. Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed our coverage of the RNC and related issues. Have a great weekend, and let's pick it up on Monday. This is the Dan Prof Show.